Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's Thursday and time for our Global Activism segment, where we feature people who make the world a better place. Today, we're going to talk with Mary McLaughlin. She's one of the co-founders of Trees That Feed. They are spreading tens of thousands of trees to places that need them around the world. It's great to see you, Mary. Thanks for having me. Tell me a little about yourself. You're originally from Jamaica, and it sounds like a lot of the philosophy of Trees That Feed comes out of knowing about living in an island environment. Yes, and I grew up on a farm in Jamaica, and we had a lot of fruit trees, and I looked at my father, and a lot of his income came from the trees that he didn't even seem to value. But they were the ones that gave him a lot of money. The mangoes he picked in the mango season or the breadfruit that he got to sell to to vendors to take to the market. And that's always stuck with me that um, you could have a, a good economic model if you planted a lot of fruit trees and created the market for those trees. Now, you were not always an agronomist. You were actually never an agronomist or anything. (laughs) Explain who you are and what you did. Well, I started out as a geologist, and I was a petroleum geologist in Texas. I moved to Chicago, and then I became an artist, and I did a lot of work for the State Department and the White House. I made a lot of gifts for U.S. presidents. You have a ceramics uh, company. Yes, yes, a ceramics company, and it still exists. My son-in-law runs it now, and I spend all my time planting trees, which is the most satisfying thing I've ever done with my life. When did you start doing that? It was pretty recently. I talked with you five years ago, but it was only 10 years ago or so that you started this? Yeah, we started 10 years ago, and I straddled between working with McLaughlin Glazeware and then planting trees. That satisfied my creative area, but I knew I needed to do something lasting on this planet, and I don't think there's anything better than planting trees, and planting trees that can feed people and create jobs and help the environment just seemed to be such a good idea. And that's why I started this. You got involved with the breadfruit tree, and I don't think most listeners probably would know or recognize a breadfruit if it hit them in the head. And it would hurt because they're big, like the size of soccer balls. But tell us how you got into breadfruit trees. Well, the breadfruit tree really is the only tree that gives you your basic carbohydrate. So think of a potato on a tree. This tree originates in the Pacific, and we have a board member from Northwest, and she's a botanist, and she happens to be a breadfruit expert, so she guides us. Imagine having such a coincidence in Chicago. She's um, Nairi Zariga, and so she guides us, and we also work very closely with the National Tropical Botanical Gardens in Hawaii. And they have a living collection there. They also have an agronomist there who is a breadfruit expert, Dr. Rigoni. So we get a lot of technical guidance from them, and then we implement. And breadfruit trees, if you grow different varieties, you can get the fruit year-round if you're clever enough? Yes, we can, and we're still studying that because, you know, the trees we planted are just 10 years old. These trees mature in about three years. They start to give fruit. So right now we're doing a study in Jamaica where we're we're getting university students and we pay them to adopt a tree. And every two weeks they report back to us on the yield. So we're now looking at yield, seasonality, soil type, water type, so we can have the amount of water each tree gets because, you know, it it varies across the island. So we can now start to build a good um, base of technical information that we can then publish and 
make available to other er- people and areas who want to grow breadfruit trees. I'm talking with Mary McLaughlin, one of the co-founders of Trees That Freed, and they are spreading trees to people who need them. I wonder if you could tell us about what is going on in Jamaica, where you originally started. Uh, you've got a, an advanced program that is very fulsome in nature. You've got educational components. You have factory components. Uh, you're, um, it's become quite a well-rounded um, economic universe. It has to because if you plant trees and there's no market, then the trees will have no value. And it's our intent that all these trees survive. If they survive and they create a, a good economics for the community and the people that have them, then you have a wholesome community, you have um, farmers who have money, and then you have marketers. So the trees are at the center. And we always want to make sure we plant the right trees with the right people. We make sure that they're kept alive and that the people who get these trees make money out of the trees. We want these trees to be like a dividend bond. So every season, they can sell their product at a good price and they, that will help their, their families. So you work with the government of Jamaica. We work very closely with the government of Jamaica. They're um, almost a de facto um, partner. They, um, in fact, next week we're going to Jamaica and we're going to be seeing the, um, the Minister of Agriculture. They've had a change in government in the last few years, and he's invited us to come and, and visit with him and talk about our program in Jamaica. The idea of... Part of your program is to bring breadfruit trees to schools. Explain how that works. Well, a lot of schools, they need to feed their kids, their lunch program. And, you know, America has a very sophisticated system of feeding their kids. But developing countries, it's more of a struggle. So if school gardens can be developed, then there's almost an immediate pantry around the perimeter of the buildings. And that's what we do. We work with 4-H clubs in schools. We work with teachers, environmental groups. And I think we have donated trees to almost every school in Jamaica and a number of breadfruit trees. And a tree doesn't take a large footprint. The footprint is in the sky. You know, that's where the foliage is. But you can have a number of trees around the perimeter of a property, and those can be harvested and cooked in the cafeteria and served to the children. In your annual report, I was reading um, a letter you got from a principal from one of the schools thanking you because the trees are providing 30% of their breakfast food every year for free. That That's a huge contribution. Right. And the fruit can be eaten fresh, not raw, but it has to be either boiled or roasted. Think of a potato. But we have developed in conjunction with Northwestern University's solar dryers. And if the fruit can then be dried and then ground into flour, you now have a fruit that would have the shelf life of about a banana. That can then be turned into flour as a preserved product with a shelf life of years. So this becomes a gluten-free breadfruit uh, flour that can be used to make, we serve about 300,000 meals between the countries that we serve. We serve a porridge um, for young kids coming into school. They start school with a nice meal, or we make energy bars, and um, the, that's, this is made in conjunction with other fruit that we dry. So with a solar dryer, these kids get a really nice meal, and it's all sustainable, almost zero carbon emission. Tell us more about the the project to make flour, because you've been supporting people who want to start 
uh, breadfruit flower factories. And this is something that's really flying. I could look in your annual report and see the, n- the amount of flour that you're producing is, uh, is going way up. Absolutely, because you have to, flour is a way of preserving the product and extending the market. So the producers then get to make a little more profit on their fruit. You can sell fresh fruit that has a short shelf life for a certain price, but when it's converted into flour, then the price increases. So it's all about the economists, too, to help in the people who have the trees. But we have what we call a factory in a box, which is just a simple um, collection of equipment. And we have a shredder. So you shred the breadfruit like you'd be grating cheese for tacos. Then you dry it in a solar dryer, and then you grind it. You can grind it in a hand grinder, and you have flour. Tell us about someone who's started one of these factories in a boxes and done well. Well, I'll tell you about a guy in northern Haiti. He came to us a couple of years ago, and he said he needed to speak through an interpreter. And he said, you promised to help. I want your help. I can make this work. And that was about two and a half years ago. We're now buying 300 pounds of flour per month from him. He's selling in supermarkets in Haiti. He's selling to guest houses and hotels. And this is a gluten-free flour. The hotels use it for gluten-free pancakes for their guests. We buy it and we donate it to orphanages so we can feed a lot of the kids that are orphans or almost orphans. Sometimes their parents can't afford to feed them, so they kind of board them in orphanages. So these kids get fed and he gets to build an industry. And as his business develops, then we gradually step back, and he will stand alone. That's a terrific idea. So, um, In addition to this, you're doing education work, and you brought along a comic book or a, a coloring book for children that talks about breadfruit trees and other fruit trees and um, the asset that they can be in their community. Well, if we want these trees to survive, if we want to cover the planet with food-producing trees to create um, agroforests, that's what we call them, or food forests, you have to start with the young. You have to educate them. And if they understand the value of trees at an early age, then then our job will be easier. These trees will survive. They will want to plant trees. So education is very important for us. And I imagine some of the people who are getting the coloring books are getting it for breakfast, and they're they're seeing the whole thing, and they see the whole cycle. Yes, they get the books. They plant trees in their schools, and they get to eat the product for breakfast. So it's a complete circle, and somebody gets to make money. So you know, you look at refugees, and a lot of refugees are refugees because they're economic refugees. They want to make a better living. But if these countries can have, they can develop this economic model around trees, I think that's such a good thing for the planet. I'm talking with Mary McLaughlin, one of the co-founders of Trees That Feed. They are spreading tens of thousands of trees to people who need them. Explain how many trees you're doing these days and where they're going. Well, we are, we are on a model where we try to grow all of our trees in country. Sometimes we have to buy them and import them, but that's costly. And we do that where we don't have the trees. But the Jamaican government came to us and they said, we think we can grow these trees. They're very difficult to grow, but let's see if we can grow them. So we went to local nursery people who were already growing mangoes and guavas and papayas, and we were buying those trees. And we said to them, see if you can grow them the traditional way, the old-fashioned way, the way the Pacific people did. They started growing them. Then we took 
Haitian agronomists to Jamaica and trained them. And now they're doing it in Barbados. So every country is now growing their own trees, which means also another economic layer that we're adding to the country. We're adding value to these countries. And that, that leads you to how many trees a year you think you're getting in the ground? Well, about 20,000. Now, 20,000 doesn't sound a lot, but these trees are tricky to grow. And we work along with those farmers to ensure that every tree lives. Because if you plant trees and you plant them and you walk away, a vast majority of them will die. And we want every tree to live. That's the only way we will be successful in reforesting. What's the obstacles to uh, tree growing? What, what, makes it, what makes these trees tricky? These trees are tricky because they're seedless. Most trees have seeds. You can put a seed in the ground and you get a tree. A banana is seedless and breadfruits are seedless. They actually have seeds, but they're not viable. So you have to grow them from the most, in most cases, you can do tissue culture in expensive labs where they grow them in greenhouses, and we get some of those. But the local people harvest wild roots from wild trees that they can find. They put them in a bed of sand, and they have to water them about four times a day for about six weeks, and you start getting little sprouts. And, uh, and that's how we, we get the trees after they're about four months old. They're potted, and once the roots are developed... Then we buy them, and then we distribute them to farmers. Who is uh, looking at this? And um, I imagine this is an attractive thing to a lot of people. When they hear about it, they think, wow, this is great. I would like to participate in, in, in this project. How do you get people to participate? Well, we are very skilled at getting the people in these countries to help. We have thousands of volunteers in Jamaica and Haiti and throughout the Caribbean and Africa. So we have no trouble there, but we would welcome more North Americans to join us. They could become ambassadors. They could help us in any way that they think they have a skill that they can help us. That's terrific. What would it mean to be an ambassador for a breadfruit tree? <laughs> well, what they can do is they can um, get trained. We have training videos. And then they could speak to their circle of friends. Think of throwing pebbles in the ocean and the ripple effect. So if they could speak to their friends over coffee to talk about them, then they can go back and like us on social media. Or if your Aunt Mabel is having her 80th birthday and she has everything, how about planting trees in her honor? in one of the countries that we serve. And you've expanded uh, to Africa. You're doing uh, trees in Africa now as yes. well as the Caribbean. We have some trees in West Africa, but recently we were approached by the Grace Project in Kenya, and they said, we've been building schools in Kenya, and we're struggling to feed the kids. And we know, we've done the research, we know breadfruit will grow, especially in the Mombasa area. Will you get us trees? So we shipped in 750 trees from Germany. They were tissue cultured. They're being grown in a greenhouse in Kenya. I've seen photographs, and the photographs are amazing. The trees are going well, and we'll be sending some to schools in Tanzania and some to schools in Uganda. What's your ambition for Trees That Feed? What do you want to see happen with it in the future? Well, we don't want to build an empire. We want to create a model that's so successful that many, many people will copy us. And we are happy to share every bit of information so other people can do this. I mean, it was just my husband and I and my brother that got this idea. If we can do it, anyone can do it. And it's fun. 
and it works. It works because governments come to us and tell us that they appreciate it. Schools, churches, um, rotary clubs, many people see the value of what's happening because they see that it's, it's greening the planet and it's creating wealth. Well, congratulations on everything you've accomplished. Uh, Mary McLaughlin is one of the co-founders of Trees That Feed. You can get more information at their website, treesthatfeed.org, and your social media is Facebook, Twitter, all that? Oh, yes. Please like us on social media. I'm I'm trying to learn to be a social media hog, and I need all the help I can get. Mary McLaughlin, great to see you. Congratulations on everything that you're doing. You're welcome. Coming up after the break, we're going to try to solve the global migration crisis. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The migration and refugee issue is one of the key drivers of politics these days in the U.S. and Europe. A new book called Can We Solve the Migration Crisis contends that political solutions like the wall treat the symptom and not the problem. With me is the author of Can We Solve the Migration Crisis, Jacqueline Bamba, professor of Practice, uh, Professor of the Practice of Health and Human Rights at Harvard University. Thanks for joining me, Jackie. Thank you for having me. Um, I wonder, you really, in your book is a rather short book. It's a like a hundred page essay. And you spend a good deal of time in the beginning of it in a chapter called Crisis Like No Other? Question mark, And you pull back the lens on migration and, and remind us of how long it's been going on and, and what, how people have reacted to it. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Because I don't think – I think we kind of get caught up in the short term all the time. Yes, the reason I spent quite a chunk of this short book on the history of migration is precisely because I think we tend to be too obsessed with the here and now and the apparently unmanageable difficulty of dealing with migration now. And we tend to forget that there has always been migration. And in fact, there's always been large-scale migration. It's as old as human history. And so in the opening section of my book, I spend some time going way back to the start of civilization, talking about how people have always moved either to find new opportunities or to escape environmental catastrophe or to explore new possibilities. I detail different mechanisms which have driven people to migrate um, over the centuries just as they do today. And the point I'm trying to make with those examples is that this is 
not only an inevitable part of human history, but actually a positive part of human history. It's part of who we are as a species that we explore, that we try to improve our circumstances and the circumstances of our family, that we are adventurous, that we take risks. And so there's nothing quintessentially static about human beings. There's nothing that forces us to have a complete bond between one place and one person for all time. So you refer to it as a tool of survival and self-advancement. That's what mobility is for the people who do it. And not that many people are doing it. If uh, around 3% of people you cite a, a number of as, as migrating? Yes. I think that's the other important point, that we tend to assume that everybody is constantly on the move and that we are being besieged by outsiders. Often people use what I refer to as these watery metaphors where fl there are floods of people, waves of people coming in. Sometimes people talk about tsunamis of migrants. And in fact, as you just said, Jerome, there are only 3% of the global population has actually migrated. And this is a figure that's been constant. So, of course, as the world's population increasing increases, so 3% is a larger absolute number. But the proportion of people in the world who migrate is still very small. Most people stay at home. Most people prefer to stay at home. But the point I'm trying to make is that when they need to leave or when they think it is in their interest to leave, then they have done so and they continue to do so. And the the crisis now is something um, you refer to as more of a, a crisis of hospitality rather than a crisis of, of migration. We're, we're just having a, a humanitarian issue with accepting refugees. Yes, I think we have a crisis of compassion, a crisis of accommodation rather than really a migration crisis. If you think about the scale of migration, take Europe, for example, you know, we had perhaps one to two million people coming. This is in a continent which has, I don't know how many exactly, but maybe 450 million inhabitants. It's got tons of space. There's lots of need for new energy and for new labor. To make such an issue and to talk in these cataclysmic terms about a relatively small number of people in a continent where there is a lot of open space really is senseless. It is a political strategy. It's a response to political interests rather than objective impossibility of accommodating new people. So it's a sense of threat from outsiders who are unwanted rather than a practical difficulty in really accommodating novelty. With this, I don't mean to say that there aren't challenges. When large numbers of people arrive from other places, there is always an accommodation that needs to be made. And I do make the point in the book, and I, I think this is an important point, that the responsibility of accommodating new people needs to be shared and needs to be shared equitably. And that's what we're not doing. So it is true that there are some regions, some zones, some 
cities, some parts of cities that are disproportionately affected by migration and where migration does lead to challenges. And I don't deny that. And I think one would be foolish to deny that. The solution is not to stop migration. It is to share the responsibility of hosting new people more equitably across a broader region. And just as this is true in a neighborhood or a city or a region, so it's true between countries. We need to do a better job of sharing the responsibility for hosting new arrivals across different countries much better than we do at the moment. Isn't that something that the European Union really, a point they really broke down on because a lot of countries did not want to share the burden and they thought it was their democratic right to exercise. Uh, you know, Hungary and Poland both were saying, well, we, you know, our people say no, we, we elected governments that don't want this and uh, we do not want to share the burden. You're absolutely right. And I think this does point to a real international and regional challenge. It's ironic, in my view, that those very countries that refuse to play their part, if you like, in taking a quota or a proportion of new arrivals are also the countries that have, in recent years, benefited most from European largesse. Poland and Hungary and generally the East European countries, which are the ones who've been the most reluctant to shoulder some of the responsibility of migrants, are the countries that have received enormous economic and social benefits from the EU membership. It's regrettable that the EU doesn't have the political strength, in my view, to enforce some sort of quid pro quo here to say, well, if you refuse to share in the responsibility of hosting people, then we are going to cut some of the agricultural subsidies, we're going to cut some of the investments that we've made in building up your infrastructure and so on. Unfortunately, the European Union has not been able to do that. And so we are, as you rightly say, in the situation where countries that have depended on Europe for so much of their recent uh, improvement in standards of living are able to turn around and say, oh, but we are just Christian countries who don't want to take responsibility for others. Why do you think that in so many countries in the developed world, including the United States, that we're, that we're losing that argument, that the, uh, the argument that we can be hospitable and we can uh, help refugees is good for us and is good for, um, you know, it isn't an endless uh, threat to our civilization. It's actually something that is healthy. Uh, there's a lot of data on that, but the, the argument is always seems to be lost politically to a more lizard brain fear reaction. I think there's several reasons, and I think this is what's complicated. I think that one reason why, I wouldn't say well, we have lost the battle, but I think, yes, at the moment, things are very uh, bleak for those of us uh, who believe that we should be more generous and more accepting. I think one of the reasons is, as I said a few minutes ago, is that the responsibility for hosting has been very badly distributed. And so there are some parts of countries where there is really a sense of threat, of um, negative impact on one's standard of living. People argue without much evidence, but people nevertheless argue and believe that their jobs are threatened, that their schools are overcrowded, that their hospitals are being taken advantage of. So where you have a situation where there is short-term pressure, which is not properly dealt with, not 
shared, not alleviated, not responded to by adequate fiscal and policy input, then people become resentful. And I've seen this even amongst people who started off really generous. So my center at Harvard has done quite a lot of work in the southern Mediterranean. If you take the case of Greece, for example, I think we all followed those stories of very large numbers of Syrian refugees arriving on those tiny islands that Greece has very close to Turkey, Lesbos being a a case in point. People in Lesbos were extremely welcoming in the beginning. They ran to the shores and and, and welcomed the, the refugees, took bottles of water, played with the children, helped ferry people to the tents, um, really put their best foot forward to try and do what they could. But after months of lack of EU support, after months where their small communities, and don't forget that Greece itself has had huge economic problems, where these communities then felt that nobody was really chipping in, where, you know, the responsibility was constantly on their shoulders, people turned hostile. And you can't really blame them. I think all of us would be willing to help and to be generous and responsible for a while. But you know, there comes a point where, you know, you still have your own family, you have your own job, you have your own responsibilities. And if you feel that other people aren't helping, then you become, uh, you become less willing to be generous. So I think that's one reason the lack of sharing. Secondly, I think, um, collectively, we don't have good mechanisms for managing uh, migration and refugee flows. And that is one of the points that I do try to address in the second half of the book. I think there's a lot of scope for improving the structures that we have, for making legal remedies stronger, for making decision-making more efficient, for increasing legal routes so that people actually can come in a regular, safe and predictable way uh, to seek protection or to seek employment without having to rely on uh, smuggling networks or even worse, get caught up in, in trafficking um, uh, gangs. I think we don't do a good enough job about really catering to the need that there is on both sides for legal migration, the need by those wanting to migrate and the need by those wanting to employ or host those who have to, who wish to move. So we need to do better. And because we haven't done a good job of really catering well to the inevitability of migration, we've ended up in a situation where a large proportion of migration has been irregular, illegal, fueled by criminal gangs rather than managed by state authorities. So that, I would say, is the second reason. Thirdly, Regrettably, of course, um, there has also been quite a lot of manipulation by some politicians, um, of course, supported by their by their backers to um, scapegoat refugees and migrants and blame them for all sorts of social ills. I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all, but I do think it's very obvious if you look at some of the political campaigns that have been run and the success that far-right politicians have had playing the migrant card, um, that using exaggerated stories of invasion and pollution of a, na of a national culture, um, that these have played well to Popula populations who feel who feel dissatisfied with with the way things are going for them, and so unfortunately, it's a very old game that you blame the outsider. We've seen it 
and seen the dreadful consequences of it many times in history. And it's sad to see this repeating itself, um, you know, in, in our age uh, when, when we should know better. But I think that is a third factor, too, that it's very politically expedient to put all the blame for complex economic policies, for scarcity in your social service system, to put the blame on outsiders who, who perhaps look or sound different. I'm talking with Jacqueline Baba. She is the author of Can We Solve the Migration Crisis? We're going to be back with more after the break and talk a bit more about the solutions to the migration crisis. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about mass migration and refugees today with Jacqueline Baba from Harvard University. She's the author of Can We Solve the Migration Crisis? And I wanted to get into more of the solutions to the migration crisis. And then um, some of them are kind of unsolvable. Uh, But you go right at conflict prevention as being a pretty good thing to do if you wanted to stop the migration crisis. Um, How do you go about uh, putting more effort into conflict prevention? So I note in the book that there are several very large reasons why we have the current situation, reasons which are way beyond migration phenomena themselves and that we can't really solve migration just by migration means alone. So as you say, Jerome, one of the reasons, um, one of the factors that I point to is conflict. Conflict is, of course, a huge precipitator of forced migration. We saw that in Syria. We've seen that again and again. We see that in South Sudan. Uh, We've seen that with the Rohingya fleeing into Bangladesh from Myanmar. When you have conflict, when you have threats to your life, of course, you flee. So how do we address that? And there are no simple solutions, unfortunately. Um, And in fact, evidence that I cite in the book shows that conflict is increasing in some ways. There are larger numbers of civil wars in the last 10 years than there were in the previous 10 years. So we're doing a very poor job of reducing conflict. One one of the things that always struck me as I was reading the book was that every time we're sold a conflict in this country, whether it's Vietnam or Afghanistan or Iraq or Libya, we're we're always um, told that something really good and liberating is going to happen to the people there and this is going to be for their benefit. We never and, you know, no one ever says, well, we're going to make a million or five million refugees uh, while we do this. But that's always the result in these circumstances. We never seem to load that in. That's right. And very often we actually say we're going to have conflict not only in order to make something good happen for the people, but to stop something bad happening for us. Um, And you're right. Very often we don't think about the inevitable spillover into forced migration. So I think increasingly the decision to go to war, to intervene, has to be extremely carefully weighed against many of the negatives that that uh, result from it, even if we think we're doing something positive or humanitarian by intervening. So th- I think there are no quick or easy solutions to that. But I think that 
infinitely greater pains to resort to diplomatic solutions are essential, essential not only for the population living in the country to um, reduce threats of loss of life, but also for the whole surrounding region. I think that the Syrian civil war has showed us how failure to really invest adequately in diplomatic uh, interventions on on various sides has really reconfigured the whole region in a way which probably will never be uh, returned to how it was before. You also mentioned that um, obviously climate change and weather events, disasters create refugees, and there's probably more optimism on this front. There are at least some mechanisms out there to help people who go through this. And if we enhance them, they might might actually be really effective. Yes, I think it's imperative that we see this element of environmental change and potential environmental harm as being an urgent priority. It's not just about the warming of the planet. It's not just about um, environmental issues per se, important though they are. It is very much also about the human consequences of deterioration in your lived environment. So I spent a lot of time in South Asia and the effects of desertification are so evident as there's less and less water. People are forced to leave uh, places where they have lived for generations and where they've supported them, their families for generations and all of a sudden they're facing a desert and they can't afford the water that they need to irrigate their fields and so they have to flee and they have to move and we're going to see more and more of that whether it's because of deserts or whether it's flooding or whether it's because of unmanageable storms. So we need to address that sensibly and um, again in an equitable way that distributes the responsibility uh, broadly, not um, leading to just one area having to disproportionately deal with massive unexpected influxes. You note that in the Paris Climate Agreement, there is a uh, this is factored in and they, they are allocating uh, money. People can get money for displacement and things. Uh, this is something that could be enhanced. Yes. And there are actually very good policy initiatives already in the works, which I refer to in the book, uh, and people can can read about, just try to think through what this would look like at a policy level uh, internationally, what sorts of mechanisms we should be developing to make climate-related refuge uh, possible so that we're thinking about environmental refugees who don't fit into the current legal regime, but how we can do better to make their uh, displacement uh, less harsh and how we can have legal mechanisms for people to continue with their lives safely. The United Nations is um, having a good go at migration these days. The Global Compact on Migration is ongoing. There's going to be a a big meeting at the end of the year about that. And um, is there... um, is there some new thinking or how would you frame what they're trying to accomplish here? Is there uh, Are there new things going on or are we trying to just reinforce some of the, the learned lessons and uh, what we're really all about when it comes to migration? I think it's both. I think – it is notable that this is the first time ever that the United Nations has addressed migration as 
a central topic. It's interesting when you think about the scale of migration and the global importance it has that this has never been on the UN agenda. It's interesting, but in a way, it's also obvious why, because migration goes so much to the core of sovereignty that states have jealously guarded their privilege to decide on their own migration policies up till now. But I think recent events created the political will to have a more collective discussion, which is very positive. So this is noticeable and and important that this is the first time that the UN has actually as a whole addressed that the General Assembly, as you say, this fall will have this topic at the forefront of their agenda. If we look at what is being proposed, there are two new global compacts, so-called, one on refugees and one on migrants. And they encompass some very new thinking and some learnt lessons. So in terms of new thinking, I think one of the most uh, important elements is this idea of really enhancing safe, legal and regular migration. The idea here is that, as I said at the beginning, migration is positive as a whole. It's not negative. So much of international discussion has been framed in terms of migration threat and um, migration-related harms. The discussion in the UN is very much centered on the notion that if properly managed, migration is a positive force for good. It's a force for development. It's a force for growth all around. So... Um, moving on from that insight, then the Global Compact on Migration develops several new ideas about how safe, legal and regular migration might be institutionalized. So, for example, there's the idea of increasing the allocation of visas for whole categories of, of, of movement that haven't really been properly catered to so far. There's the idea of really using much better information to anticipate needs so you're not caught um, unawares with sudden influxes that you use all the technological tools we have to anticipate what's happening that you can predict and you can preempt. Um, There's the idea of using different types of migration, not necessarily one-way Um, permanent migration, but cyclical migration, temporary migration, seasonal migration, migration for study, different types of migration as part of a more composite package of tools. So there are many, I think, constructive new ideas, which uh, hopefully will be discussed um, by the member states when they convene in in New York in in September and October. Um, There are also some reiterations of lessons learnt from the past, the recent past in particular. So the idea of responsibility sharing that I already mentioned receives a lot of attention in the refugee compact, the idea that we we have to deal with this uh, humanitarian responsibility as a collective humanity. We can't um, absent ourselves from the need for intervention just because it doesn't suit our immediate political agenda. That is really an important point, not a new point, but such an important point. And I think the um, UN documents that I've seen that are preparing for this do a very good job of explaining why this is important, why if you turn your back on these humanitarian needs and you selfishly 
just look after your own narrow domestic interests, you're shoring up potential danger for the future. Because oh. after all, people will flee if they have to. And so then they'll find less desirable ways of doing so, which might end up harming you. When it comes to burden sharing, I think a lot of countries in the developed world um, think that if they pay for um, the UN refugee program and they pay for all the people who were in Jordan, that that's, that's their form of burden sharing. Is that good enough? No. You're right that many people do this, not just in the developed world. If you think about um, the countries in the Middle East, many of the very rich countries in the Middle East who are neighbors to some of the most uh, needy populations and who are you know, culturally akin – uh, have actually had very poor records of refugee hosting. So they have contented themselves with giving large um, payouts to countries that have shouldered most of the of the responsibility. I don't think that is a solution for several reasons. Firstly, I think, as I said, that the responsibility for actually hosting needs to be shared. It's not just giving money to Jordan or Lebanon to have, as in the case of Lebanon, one in every three of your residents being a refugee. That's not a solution. It's not viable in the long term. It's not fair. It's not good for the Lebanese population. It's not good for the refugee population. Um, so I think that the responsibility sharing is practically not sustainable, and I think it's ethically not desirable. But secondly, I think it's short-sighted because um, the aging, graying countries of the global north or, or, or the developed world desperately need energetic, smart, dynamic, ambitious um, demographic input. And we know that. We know that from the history of this country, how much the U.S. has gained from uh, people who fled here in World War II, how, how many uh, contributions, economic, social, political, artistic, have been made by these communities. So to say that this is not an asset that you want to partake in is very short-sighted. I wanted, um, so I think that is not a good idea. Yeah, sorry. I wanted to ask another question about um, something that um, maybe the Global Compact on, on my, uh, ref, uh, Refugees would kind of deal with is uh, the definition of a refugee. It seems to be a little lacking and narrowly applied these days. You know, if you're from Latin America and you're – uh, want refugee status in the United States, it, it's really hard to get. You would have to have had a gun to your head and somebody telling you you could never, ever come home again before you could get refugee status. Um, you talk more about uh, something called distress migration, which is, sounds uh, more realistic and more like what we would want to provide refuge for, a whole range of things, uh, be it gender, domestic abuse, all the things that uh, seem to apply these days, and uh, gang-related activities. Um, should, should, the, should the UN go in and just try to rip up the, uh, the definition of refugee? Um. I don't think the UN should rip up the definition of a refugee for two reasons. Firstly, the refugee definition has served us very well for the past 50 years since the Refugee Act was, was – um, Refugee Convention was signed in 1951. It's provided one of the most substantial humanitarian benefits, I think, to mankind. Millions of people have benefited. So it's a good instrument. 
and we shouldn't just rip it up. Secondly, many of the categories you mentioned, such as women fleeing from domestic abuse, or we, we could mention people who are fleeing from homophobia, or people who are fleeing gang-related violence or child abuse, these categories do fit in the refugee definition if it is properly construed. And of course, that begs the question, what does properly construed mean? But in this country, there's been enormous progress in really expanding how we conceive of the, the definition and expanding how the terminology of the definition applies. Unfortunately, in the current political climate, um, a lot of those gains are being rolled back. And this is, again, a political decision by the administration to narrowly limit who a refugee is way in excess of what the refugee definition itself um, presents. So I think that we need to use the definition we have and make it do the work it was intended to do. I also think more pragmatically that this is not the time to open up for discussion a major humanitarian convention like this because chances are we'll get something worse, not better. So both for substantive reasons or doctrinal reasons about the elasticity of the definition and for much more pragmatic reasons about the political climate we're in now, I don't think we should rip up the definition. What I do think we should do, though, is think of many different ways in which humanitarian protection can be provided, even for people who maybe don't fit in to the convention definition, people who are, for example, um, who can't show that they have a well-founded fear of persecution, but who are fleeing a situation of conflict, which affects large numbers of people, so or people who need some protection for some period of time, but maybe don't need it indefinitely. There are many different variations that we can think of. Yeah. So I think we don't need to... Um, go back to the drawing board in terms of the definition. Jacqueline Baba is a teacher at Harvard University, and she's the author of Can We Solve the Migration Crisis? It's a 100-page book that attempts to do it in uh, 100 pages. Thanks a lot for joining us, Jacqueline Baba, and uh, good to talk with you. Thank you for having me. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about... Uh, the British, uh, the U.S. recently announced new sanctions on Russia for the assassination of a British citizen in England. And tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk with the U.K.'s deputy ambassador to the U.S. about the poisonings. Hope you can join us for that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.